Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Hi, I'm delighted to say Joanna Fortune uh, uh, joins us in the studio. And I'm actually seeing Joanna Fortune. Delighted which I'm, to I'm be delighted here. to say that as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, so uh, here's the first question. Uh, my six year old uh, uh, daughter is having difficulty regulating her emotions. This became more prevalent when she started school last year. It's manifesting itself in a few different ways. She can get angry if something doesn't go her way, and she can be quite hard on herself if she makes a mistake. If she doesn't want to join in or if she is upset, most of the time she will just go quiet and won't say anything. Sometimes her frustrations can lead to her hitting. We are waiting to see a psychologist and get an assessment. But in the meantime, you want to find ways to help her. We read all sorts of books about feelings, emotions, worries, etc. And I've helped her to learn about the tools she needs. But she doesn't seem to be able to put them into practice. It's so upsetting as most of the time she's a very happy girl. Academically, she's no issue. She gets on well with her three-year-old brother. She has a few summer camps over the next few weeks. And I am worried about how she'll get on. I mean, there's loads in this one that just really intrigues me. I think, first of all, it's great as parents you've worked out, you know, look, by the time she's hitting out physically, it's because she's frustrated. You know, so you're developing that understanding of, oh, look, by the time she lashes out, the frustration has been building. And sometimes she shuts down and pushes that inward by going quiet and not speaking up. But that only allows that frustration to bubble up even more Mm. and then maybe lashing out impulsively because she's six. And I think because she's six is something to hold on to here because I would never really expect children under seven years old. And again, always emphasising developmental age over chronological because no two seven-year-olds are the same or six-year-olds. But, you know, uh, children under seven really don't self-regulate their emotions, not consistently. They rely on co-regulation, on attuning to the emotional state of the adult that, you know, their important parent or, you know, summer camp leader or teacher, whoever it might be, their important adult. So that when our children lose it, I am saying when, you know, if we lose it with them, they can't co-regulate with us because it's all about tension and rage. But if we can stay cooler, (laughs) even... 20% 20% cooler than they are at any stage. We give them something to co-regulate with us against and that is how she will acquire that capacity to ultimately self-regulate. So at six, I would manage your expectations of her being able to fully regulate uh, all of these emotions, particularly the emotions that seem to be triggered when things aren't completely in her control. And, you know, there is that, you know, if things don't go her way, she's very hard on herself if she makes a mistake. You know, going to school was a whole new opening up and don't forget like the little ones who started school last year, they had a very skewed school year. It wasn't consistent. It wasn't predictable. Mm. It wasn't ideal. So the fact that she got through it, you know, she did really well. But of course, you're seeing these flashpoints of temper then. The other thing that ultimately upskills our children to be able to self-regulate their emotions is by going through those three stages of developmental play. So they go through in those early years, the messy, tactile, you know, embodiment play, but basically playing with bodies and touch and exploring all kinds of senses, making noise, painting your walls, all of that stuff that they do, creating a mess. And that's really good for them. And it's about learning they've an inside and outside and about containment and limits, which, of course, then translates to boundaries in behaviour. And then they go into that story to play. You know, they have all the little characters and toys talk to each other and then they insert themselves into characterization. They are the teacher or the parent or they are in role. It's only by going through those stages of play that they 
they get the skills they need to be able to self-regulate. So just be aware she's still in that process of development. So just pay attention, you know, did she do that messy play? Did she do that story play? Is she doing a bit of role play now? And give her space and time. Now, I do note that you're waiting for an assessment with a psychologist. So there might be some other stuff going on here that has Mm. warranted that. And certainly if you're waiting for that, go ahead. I'm always a fan of ruling things out if you're in any way concerned or worried. But when you're reading her books about feelings and you say you're, you know, helping her to learn about tools, I'm not quite sure what that means. But children are very experiential learners. They learn by doing. So we can sit there and we can teach them breathing and we can teach them mindfulness and we can teach them these things. But in the moment of the flash of the temper, we flip yeah. our lids, don't we? Yeah. Like we, yeah. we lose it. And when you flip your lid, that part of the brain associated with recall and reasoning and rationalization, it's offline. And what's calling the shots is the emotional area of my brain that, you know, isn't warm and fluffy anymore. It's more roaring and growling. Mm. And it's cueing me that I'm right to feel the way that I am. So fight, flight, freeze. And that's where she is. So your words won't land in that stage. Get her to play it out. Get her to do lots of the sensory play, lots of painting, get her outside, lots of physical play, lots of play outdoors in different environments like the forest, the beach, the park, lots of changing the field of vision for her to reset that busy, ruminating little brain of hers. That's actually how she will learn, not by teaching her alone. Yeah, even... I suppose I don't want to be too unfair to this parent, but the premise, my six-year-old is having difficulty uh, regulating their emotions, the answer to that might be, duh. Well, now you see, I would never say that. <laughs> I know. You're the professional. I thought I'd say <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, it just seemed like that's, this is not a very surprising thing no, to say you know about a six-year-old. Well? Like we, we can prematurely think our children are capable because they'll show us. They'll go through periods of time where they seem to nail it. Absolutely. And then we'll yeah. go, this is great. They can do it. And then they'll show us, no, I'm, I'm five, I'm six. Mm. I, I don't get it all the time. And I think, you know, we just have to be aware that there's some behave- degree of, now it varies child to child, mild, moderate, severe. Behavioural regression is not unusual at the moment yeah, um, yeah. because of the context we're all living in. Because don't we, all, I mean, control it can be very reassuring at this age. I know what's going to happen. I know when it's going to happen. I know how. That has been gone yeah. for the last year. So I just think lots and lots of space, lots of play, but very practical fully immersed, hands-on play. And don't, like the books are great. I'm never going to tell someone not to read to their kids. I think it's the greatest tool we have with our kids. And there is literally a book for every crisis for a child out there. You know, many (laughs) of them. But it alone won't be enough because in those moments of frustration, that's not what she's reaching for. She's in it and she needs to have those skills for when you're in it. So she'll feel play and do her way out of it. So lots and lots of play about this one. Yeah, I, I, I... Given I own a five, own a five, a five and a half year old owns me. I should say that's but, usually but, the but, way. Yeah, uh, is but like she is. Some days, oh, moment to moment, some days it's like okay, and you go, God, you're great, and yeah. then the next minute she's exactly. literally telling me this is the worst thing that's ever happened to her in her entire life. Absolutely, because they're very much in what they're feeling. Yeah. So when it's good, it's great. And when it's bad, it's a disaster. And both of those truths coexist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They can live with contradictions far more easily than totally, adults can. We absolutely. should be able to do that. Yeah. Really. Uh, I have an eight-year-old son and have noticed that he frequently lies to me. He doesn't just tell white lies. They're whoppers. And I'm worried that this obsession with hiding the truth isn't good for him. He doesn't veer from his story even when I question him. Even when he knows that I know he's lying, I give out about it a lot to him. 
but he still seems determined to do it. I wouldn't mind if it was about something small, but it's really become a habit and it's gotten to the point where I don't know whether or not he's being truthful with me and I have to ask his siblings what happened. I wonder what happened would spark this kind of behaviour. Is it a lack of self-confidence? How do I encourage him to be honest? Oh, you know, and it's not always a popular thing when I say this, but the truth is the truth of this Mm -hmm. lying business is that learning how to tell a lie is as developmentally important as learning to tell the truth. Mm. And it takes children until they're about nine or ten to truly refine that skill. And he is slap bang on the age where you can tell a pretty convincing lie. You know, there are times you're going to get caught out, but you're so immersed, you're so bought into it that you're like, I'm just, I'm in it now. I'm just going to see it out. (laughs) And sometimes they'll tell us lies that we end up going, is that the truth? Like, are they, are they telling me a lie? Do you know, they start lying really young. Um, Lying can seem like a harsh word when you're talking about a three year old, but that's when they begin to realise my parents don't know everything. They're not all seeing, all knowing all the time Mm. and they'll chance things. Mm. You know, they'll chance holding the red crayon all over your wall and saying it wasn't them. You know, like they're not very good at lying, but they will do it. And really, they, they begin to develop that skill further four to six years old, I'd say, but they would still end up telling on themselves because the guilt gets to them. You know, they're like, no, no, it wasn't me. And then later, actually, it was me. They can't hold it. But by eight, yeah, they can run with it and they can stick with it. So there's nothing pathological about this. Well, I don't know the nature and the Mm, detail of the lies. That would be relevant. And there can be a pro-social side to lies. That's why they're important, because, you know, being able to tell the grandparent that I really do love that jumper you knitted me, thanks very much, even though it itches me and I don't like to wear it. You learn by this age to be able to protect somebody else's feelings Mm. by these lies. And there can be a kindness and a pro-social gain to that. So, you know, we're not. But here this parent is being very clear it's not just those yeah. kind lies or white lies that they might be called. So I really think that this is about having a, a he's eight having a conversation with him you know about lying and truth and really just talking quite honestly talk about trust you know that it's really important that I can trust you because if you keep telling me lies then I just don't know if I can believe anything you say and it means that it's going to be hard for me to let you do the things you want or when you say you're going somewhere that to believe you're really going there and you're basically highlighting that he's self-sabotaging himself that this is actually about him and bringing it back now you don't have to do that in a preachy lectury way because that definitely doesn't work as soon as you go into that lecture preach tone children you universally tune out like they they check out and they go yeah 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 did you hear me I did yeah yeah but they're not paying a a scrap of attention but so help me to understand why it's beneficial because I'm egocentric in this stage of development as well and I need to see how does it impact me I mean the classic cautionary tale to revisit is of course the boy who cried wolf you know that story is Mm. you know very effective at highlighting the risks and you can relate it back and you could also then read that story together but then say you know how would you feel if I lied to you and how would you feel if your teacher lied to you and how would it be what would you think if I was telling lies to your other parent or telling lies to your sister and really getting your son to think about what his opinion of people telling lies is rather than of other people, you know, rather than himself, because it's much easier to criticise other people and critically evaluate them than to relate that back to ourselves, be we eight or 80. I think that's still true. Um, But if they're deliberate lies, you know, lies that are loaded, that are really problematic and are causing 
difficulty and you know that they're at a level of no, look, we're beyond talking. This has these are lies with serious consequences. You want to be really clear that it's not acceptable that in your family, the truth is what matters and lying won't be tolerated. So there will be consequences for telling lies. You want to be now do this in a calm way, you Mm. know, and if you're not feeling calm in the moment, that's not the moment to have this conversation. Do it when you're calm, when he's calm. So not in the lie, but maybe afterwards. Make it, you know, very clear that you know when he's lying, you know, that and basically when he continues, what he's doing is he's double lying. So he's digging it deeper and the consequence will reflect that. And you want to make it easy to tell the truth by not consequencing the truth. So you consequence the lie. But if I come to you and I tell the truth that you don't go, okay, but you're still grounded or Mm, you can't mm. do this or that because then there's like well sure look that would have happened whether I told you the lie or not so I should have just stuck with that you want to do it really incentivize me practically to tell you the truth and praise the truth like heap the praise on the truth be really interested role model telling the truth like even you know give examples of you know I I was supposed to deliver a document by two o'clock today and you know I didn't do it and I could have pretended that something happened and there were all these reasons, but actually I just didn't get to it. So I I told my boss or my manager the truth and, you know, it was okay. Like, give me a real life, practical adult example and you model it by doing. And you could play with it. You know, you could play, you know, that game Two Truths and a Lie. And, you know, you know, at eight, don't make the lie really obvious, but don't make it too hard to spot mm. and name how you know the other person is lying. Well, your your eyes changed and I noticed you started twitching and I noticed this and that's what made me think that was the lie. So you're helping me know that I give nonverbal cues and I, my body language gives me away when I'm lying. And that's how you know you're not reading my mind. I am telling you I'm lying without using words. So you could be playful with that and just, you know, be aware that we're talking about lying, but children making up things and making up scenarios is also imaginative play. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's a fine line here. You don't want to be coming in and go, God, my child makes things up there. That is that lying. You have to kind of stay very grounded on this. Mm. Like if they're making up a story and then this happened and that happened. Enter into the lie with them, you know, enter into the story and go, wow. And then and I wonder if and you start putting fantastical elements in. So you almost blow the story out of all proportion. So they're calling you on it and going, no, that's not real. That didn't happen. So, you know, you can be playful with this. We want to encourage imagination, but just drawing the line about those big, deliberate, real life consequence lies, highlighting the pro-social bit, but understanding at eight that lying, that that's quite normal. It's problematic when it causes problems in the family. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We do have to take a break uh, after that. Uh, more questions for Joanna, including one about an 11-year-old being bullied by her cousin. 53106 is our text number. That will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. Joanna Fortune is still with us. Uh, next question is this. My 11-year-old daughter is a quiet and unassuming child, but she started to tell me about apparent bullying that she's encountered over the last year or so. She says her cousin, with whom she spends a lot of time, has been deliberately leaving her out of games and getting other kids to gang up on isolating my daughter. I haven't witnessed any of this personally, and so I'm reluctant to go accusing my sister and her child of something when I don't know what's actually going on. My daughter says this tends to take place in a school environment or online, but says it gets deleted by the other kids or flies under the radar with the supervising adults. I don't think my daughter's making it up, but how do I defend her without causing a fallout with the families involved? Oh my God, light the blue Nightmare. touch paper here. Yeah. Nightmare, but at the same time, 
you do know what's going on because your daughter has told you what's going on and you need to believe her. And I think you do believe her. But if you say that out loud, it means what am I going to do with it? And I think the first step here is to believe her, to tell her and reassure her that you believe her. Then I would ask her to tell you the full story, even just pick, you know, she's telling you it happens here, it happens there online. Get her to tell you the full story of one of those incidents. You know, what happened, what was said, by who. Give the whole, in as much detail as possible so that you're getting that relational episode with all the details because then you do have a clearer picture of what's going on. And I think that will also help her to talk it out loud with you. What, who said what and when and where and what order, all of that. Then I, my next step, because she's 11, would be to try and empower her to call her cousin out on this and to actually mm. say to her cousin, can you not do that? That really hurts my feelings. Um, you know, I'm really upset about it. I'd really like you to stop. And if you don't stop, then I'm going to get our two moms to talk about it, knowing your mom's my aunt. My mom is your aunt. Yeah. So I always think it is ideal if children can address now, if it's full blown, very, you know, I mean, because this does sound like, you know, I'm always saying, you know, is it bullying? Is it kids being rude and mean to each other? This sounds like it's crossing a line, if yeah. I'm honest with you, into yeah. bullying. And I really want your daughter to feel supported in this. So she's saying to you, no, I can't say it to her. I don't feel able to do that or I've already tried to do that and it hasn't worked. The next step would be to actually arrange a family meeting with you, your sister, the two girls and sit down and talk about it as a foursome and it's not a you did, you said, but okay, tell your cousin what's happening, what you're feeling about it and give her a chance to respond and try to agree together about that. I know. Should I'm, the sisters talk to each other first about this? I think a heads up for yes, sure, because yeah. otherwise, I mean, if that was me, I don't want you to catch me on the hop with that because mm. I want to be able to address it with my daughter as well. But I think if you're saying, look, the girls aren't getting on. In fact, my daughter is saying she's being bullied and this is an example she's given me, but it's just one example of a few incidents. I think the best thing is if we all talk about it and get it out in the open so we can work it through and it's not an issue in September going back to school. Mm. Now, I'm saying that as if everyone's going to go, sure, what a great idea. (laughs) At the same time, your sisters, you know your own relationship with each other and the kind of tinderbox this might be. At the same time, you know, if I, I just, you know, if we insert ourselves into it, I'd want to know. I would want to know. I would want to be able to address that. So I think you have to address this. The way you do it is slightly different because you're family members. But the manner in which you do it has to be the same as if it was a and a child you're not related to. Your daughter has told you for a reason. Okay, part of that reason is I want to talk it out loud. I want to be able to think it out loud with you and feel supported by you. You can definitely do that. And the other part is, what is it you want me to do with this? We have to work it out because she can't go back to school with this happening. It's not fair. You know, Mm. she has a right to feel safe and not to be threatened as she goes about being Being 11 is hard enough. Yeah. You know, without all of this. But children's friendships do change and evolve. And just because they're cousins doesn't mean they have to be friends. And you may need to give the two girls permission to not be friends. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. You know, and I think this can happen when you've got cousins who live close by. They're the same age. They go to the same school. They they share friends. And there's this almost forced relationship. They can be cousins and relate as cousins do at family events, but they don't have to be friends and they might need permission for that at this stage. 
Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. My one-year-old seems to be regressing with her walking. Over the past few weeks, she's falling over more and more instead of the steady progress she had been making before. I'm worried this is because she's constantly having to look all, up all the time to see me and my <laughs> partner and then gets unbalanced as a result. Or is regression in walking normal? I mean, there's a couple of things. Like, one is young for walking. We really yeah, normalise premature really well. walking. Yeah. You know, we normalise, oh, all children walk at one. They don't. It takes lots of children until they're 18 months to walk, you know, even longer. So she's young for this. She is acquiring the skill of walking. Because I wasn't clear, you know, with this one. Is this a child who has fully learned how to walk properly and has now regressed or was learning and there's some wobbling happening because if it's the latter falling stumbling wobbling is very normal and actually an integral part of learning how to walk part of learning how to walk is learning how to fall down safely and get yourself back up again and keep trying but if she had if you're listening and go no she was a really early walker she mastered walking fully and now has regressed it's a marked regression or if you're thinking you know the shape of her legs when she's walking is concerning me or I feel there's a decreased muscle tone and that's part of it then I would act on this, of course, you know, go to your GP, go to your public health nurse, flag that concern and be referred for developmental check for a paediatric physio who could give some support. But if it's more, look, she is still learning, but she's wobbling more than she was. Might that be because she's trying greater distances than she was before? You know, as they get, I was I was walking, you know, one cushion worth, but then I was managing two cushions. But as I went for three, I'm now wobbling and going a bit backwards back to where it felt safe, that one cushion space. Is it something like that? That would be quite normal. Like you could give her something like a ball or something to hold so that her focus is on the ball in front of her and not looking all around her, knocking her off balance. And that Mm. can help. Also, as the grown-ups, because you are obviously much, much bigger than her, come down to the floor, open up your arms and have her walk towards you and into you. And if she can do that successfully, then you know she can do it. And it is looking up at you and looking around that's throwing her off balance. So have a little play with it, I think, and see that she can do it. If it is falling, though, into those categories of no, I think there's something else. She's one act on it, you know, but just I think we all need to kind of our kids will learn how to walk and it's a process, but let's not hurry them through it either. Yeah. We have an 18-month-old who has never had a babysitter because of the pandemic. Myself and my partner now feel the time is right to have an evening out and are worried about getting someone in to mind our son as he's never been without us before. Would you have any advice on how to ease him into the process? Yeah, and you feel the anxiety on this from parents, don't you? Because (laughs) it's not just you're bringing in a babysitter for your 18-month-old, you're bringing in a babysitter for you as well because you have to trust the babysitter. You have to feel like... Okay, I'm happy to be doing this and I can enjoy that time out as opposed to, is it okay? Is it okay? Should I text? Should I ring? Texting every five minutes. You know, know, that you may as well be at home. Mm. But I mean, look, the first time you do it, I don't know. Most parents will be super anxious about that. I know some will be listening, go, nope, ran out, thought it was fine, (laughs) no bother. I would do a gradual introduction. Okay, I don't think you just have the babysitter come over the night you're going out because I think that is quite scary for you and your child. You know, have the person in question call around, have them stay with you have a cup of tea in the house, let your child see them. And Mm. then you want to kind of greet them really excitedly and warmly at the door. Oh, look who it is. It's so and so. And so your child has this positive association. Oh, this person is great fun. Everybody's delighted when they come and they begin to take that cue from you and then name the person afterwards over dinner or over lunch and say so and so came and it was so much fun. And what did we do? And you're reinforcing that positive association. 
get them to call and play while you then leave the room for a while. Could even just be a few minutes and you come back and you go and you come back. But your child is getting gradually increased periods of staying with this person without you being physically present and gradually build those bursts up, you know, really, really do it that way. Um, And I think if you ask them the night that you're going out, the night, like they'll only be the one, that first (laughs) night, have them arrive a little bit early, you know, 20 minutes early or so, so that, you know, you're there, they're there without you just saying, oh, you're in, right, listen, there's this, this is how the microwave works, we're out of here, Um, so that your child again is eased in. The temptation would be put them to sleep, disappear. I get that, but what if they wake? Mm, then yeah. that's really scary because mm. you have literally disappeared on me. So say goodbye would always be my recommendation, but don't make it a fanfare. Okay? Yeah. Say goodbye and then go. Prepare the babysitter. This is the favourite teddy. These are, you know, this is how it all works. This is the routine so that they have everything. And then trust that you've made an informed decision. Trust the person. Let them do what they're there to do. Um, You know, I, I hope that helps somewhat, but I think it's the gradual introduction and the fami- especially because of the pandemic and your child has not been with anyone else ever. Yeah. I think building some familiarization will be the easiest way oh, to yeah. begin this. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, the leaving, the saying goodbye part, oh, I'd be, yeah. I'd be inclined to kind of not put them to bed, leave them in their room, you know, having a good time yeah. with the babysitter, and then maybe slip out. Absolutely. Uh, so they're in the bedroom or wherever yeah. they go to sleep and playing, and then you leave. Yeah, something like that. Make sure the babysitter knows whatever song or book or Teddy is of the moment, though. Oh yeah, uh, I've uh, uh, one last one. Well, I have a six-month-old who's going yeah. to bed between six thirty and seven, with a time frame of one and a half to two hours between naps before her bedtime. She's going down okay, but she started to wake roaring within twenty to thirty minutes and will not settle again. I need some help. Yeah, I mean you're still in the you know in the throes of newborn stuff here. Like mm. this is a young young baby, and you know their sleep patterns are all over the place at this stage. You know even developmentally. So I'm not sure I'm on. Un- understanding fully, you know, that they're going to bed between 6.30 and 7. I'm kind of assuming that's for the night, but the time frame of one and a half to two hours between naps before bed, I'm not sure I understand. Well, I, sounds I, like a lot of naps. That's actually yeah. what I was thinking as well, Sean. So what I would say to you is like what we're aiming for, and I've had a small child, so I'm saying this while rolling my eyes, like the, <laughs> the aim is 15 hours sleep a day for, for babies this age. And that is... Ideally, you know, that lovely 11 hours, they all get unbroken, uninterrupted at night because all babies do that, obviously. Mm. And then we're looking for kind of um, three and a half hours worth of naps that you would spread over two to three naps. So make sure this baby isn't over napping and therefore not really tired. So they're Mm. going to bed for you, getting a burst of sleep and going, great, that was great. I had that nap now. Now I'm up and treating the nighttime sleep as a nap rather than what it's intended to be. Um, But because it's happening as well, you know, 20 to 30 minutes and, you know, screaming, roaring, I just want to rule out any little tummy pains or any gas buildup. Is there a feed very close to going down mm. and might there be some wind issues? So I realise I'm responding to this question with more questions for yeah. the person. But it's largely because I think there's this, I don't think it's a myth. I just think it's the desire we have as parents that there is an answer for sleep problems. And, you know, <laughs> there just isn't, Yeah, you know, yeah. like some children sleep well, some don't, some co- go through phases. There's natural phases of sleep regression and often they get very restless coming into a growth spurt as well. Teething is a consideration. There's so much here that you'd have to consider That's and reflect on. Yeah. I just don't have a neat answer. But I would say to you, if because your baby is six months old, you still very much 
should be leaning on your public health nurse for support. So reach out. I know that services are limited because of the pandemic restrictions, but that doesn't mean you can't ring and say, I really need to talk to someone or I'd love mm. a visit. Can you add me to the schedule? I really have some questions. I would encourage you because, you see, we don't have those, you know, parent infant groups, you know, which can be such a support when you have a small, even if it's not your first baby, it doesn't matter. It's the first time you've had this baby, you know, and no two babies are the same. So reach out to your public health nurse for a bit of support as well. Yeah. Joanna, lovely to see you again. Likewise. Uh, 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 Joanna Fortune, there you are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break after that, pulling down statues. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.